right, so we've moved into Romans 9. So, right, we went through justification, sanctification, glorification. And then in 9, chapter 9, he takes a break, right? So basically from 1 through 8, generally, Paul is giving us orthodoxy, right, teaching, right? And then from 11 and a half or 12 to 16, he's going to give us orthopraxy or good conduct, right? Right behavior, right response to that good teaching. But in the middle of that, he needs to answer a few questions. And the few questions are three. And the first one is, why are there so few Jews being saved when the gospel is to the Jew first, right? That was, that was Romans 1.16. Second question is, can the Gentiles trust God when his promises to Israel have not been fulfilled? Right? Can we, can, we've been learning about all these promises, all these blessings, all these things. Can we trust that when he made the same or similar blessings and, and promises to Israel? Yet, you know, what, what about that? And the third question is, has the gospel invalidated God's promises to Israel or has it made it null because they rejected the Messiah? So he has to answer these questions to solidify those who aren't Jewish that you can trust in God, right? And so his, what we talk, uh, went over last week was um, his sorrow, and then he talked about his privileges, uh, the privileges of Israel, right? And we learned how even in his, in his own self, if he could, he would give up his salvation in a sense, to allow all Israel to be reconciled back to God. That he had great sorrow and anguish in his heart because of the condition of Israel, being that they rejected their Messiah, and now they were alienated from, from God, right? Um, and he wished that he himself would be accursed for their sake. Obviously, he knew that that couldn't happen, that you can't just, you can't take on the wickedness of a nation yourself as a human being. Christ took on wickedness of mankind, but Paul recognizes he can't do that, right? So then he talked, so then he says, well, then what benefit is it to being a Jew, basically, right? If, what about them? What do we do with them now? And so he goes on to a whole bunch of privileges they have, and remember it's the adoption, right? They were adopted as sons, the glory, the Shekinah glory, that they had the physical manifestation of God, one example of that was leaving Egypt. By day would be a cloud, by night would be a fire, right? The physical manifestation of God in the Shekinah glory. They had, so they were adopted as sons, they had the glory, they had the covenants, right? Primarily the, <coughs> the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional land, seed, and worldwide blessing. Um, they had the law, which was there was the way to obtain righteousness, actually, to understand God's righteousness. We've been studying what the law is, and the law is very, very good. It's not, a, it's not just a yoke. It is a yoke if you try to maintain the law and be righteous. What the law does is exposes your sin, right? It exposes your need of a Savior. So the law is very good to shed light on the cockroaches of your closet life, right? When you open the closet of the law, opens the closet of your life in that darkness, and then all of a sudden you see all this stuff, right? So it's very good in that aspect, so you have an opportunity to clean it up. Um, the privileges of Israel also include worship, right? They would worship and praise and offer sacrifices and offerings and all these things. And again, the promises, the, the new covenant is a promise, the land, all kinds of things are coming out of promises given to Israel. 
And then in verse 5 of chapter 9, he says, And then to them belong patriarchs, and, and Christ, the Messiah, came from Jews, right? Scripture comes from Jews. It doesn't come from Gentiles, it comes from Jews. We are beneficiaries of the Jews' receiving of God's blessings and mercy. So there is high benefit to being a, a Jew, right? So then we'll just retouch on um, A2, which is the lens of biblical history, to show how God has not forgotten them, right? God has not failed them. The scripture that recorded God's promises and blessings has not failed. It will prove to be not a failure. It will prove to be purposeful, and it will come to fruition. So this is kind of the key. Verse 6 is kind of the key to understand this whole section. Um, so if someone read verse 6, we kind of went over it last week, but we'll just touch it on it again. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, so... The problem is not that the word of God fail, obviously, right? Or his promises have failed. They haven't. Um, <clears throat> because the plan and purpose of God still continues on. Whether or not Israel does this or does that, his plan and purpose was set way back when he promised Abraham those things, and then it just followed through that continuous line, right? Um, it hasn't been suddenly annulled or frustrated by Israel's rejection of the Messiah. It doesn't actually do anything. He foreknew it. He foreplanned it. He foreordained those things. And today we're going to actually talk a lot about um, election and how God does what he wants to do, right? Whether we think it's fair or just or right, whatever, you know, and I always kid around, if, if you think you can do better, go get yourself a universe, you know, and, and make those decisions. Um, but God does what he does, and he's just in doing it any way he wishes to do it. And, and not that he would do things unjust. What we would have to do is just align ourselves to his justice. We have our own idea of what justice should be. I had a guy yesterday ask me, he says, well, why, why did God allow his people to die, so many, six million, to die in the Holocaust, you know? And, you know, how do you really answer that? And I, my, my first answer was, oh, I don't know why God does things. I can't answer why he does things. But he's not unjust, and the things that he does is for his purpose and plan. So, But we'll, we'll go over a little more of that. So his, fail, the, his word has not failed, and then he explains how there's a division in Israel even. There's two kind of Israel groups, right? So it says, for they are not all Israel that are of Israel. Um, and remember, he's not distinguishing between Jews and Gentiles, right? He's actually distinguishing between Jews and Jews, right? Believing Jews and non-believing Jews, right? So the remnant and the non-remnant. We're, we're of the Gentiles, but we are a sanctified people, a set-apart people from other Gentiles, right? So even though we fall under the broad spectrum of the Gentile group, within that Gentile group are those who are part of the church, right? Paul's making that same uh, illustration that is within Israel are believing ones and non-believing ones. The believing ones we would call the remnant. And always throughout Scripture, the remnant has always been small. Right? It hasn't been like the majority of the people. And it could be said of the Gentiles too. The majority of Gentiles are not saved. Right? They might claim some kind of Christianity, but they're not saved. 
by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. So, okay, so we pretty much, we got that, right? Um, so when he says all Israel, right, or they, for they are not all Israel that are of Israel, he's, an, he's elaborating on what he did uh, discuss in Romans 2, uh, 28 through 29. So I'll just read Romans chapter 2, 28 through 29. So he's elaborating on that comment made before, and this is 28 and 29 of chapter 2. <clears throat> it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So he's, he's continuing on that same sort of dialogue, um, that there's a distinction between in Israel as a whole and Israel as a believing remnant. Yeah? So now he's going to give examples of that, illustrations of that from Scripture, from Old Testament Scripture. Uh, the first illustration is uh, verses 7 through 9, and it's of Ishmael and Isaac. Um, and so his purpose is to point out that just because you're a physical descendant doesn't make you the remnant of Jews that believe, right? So you could be a physical descendant of Abraham, but doesn't mean that you're going to receive the spiritual allocation of those things, of the blessings and the promises, okay? So, because faith, as we also learn, who, who gives you faith? God gives you faith. Do you have the ability to just wake up and see God? Not according to Romans 1, right? You're like, we're all what? Filthy rags. We're like the worst. We, we know, there's no one who chooses God. Not, no, not one, right? And so he's the one who gives you faith. You respond positively. More and more and more and more comes, right? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so faith comes from a divine, sovereign calling, right? All things work together for the good of those who love him and are what? Called by him according to his purpose. It's not your calling. You didn't pick up the phone first and say, Lord, here I am. You know, he called you. You answered. And then it all went from there. <clears throat> Okay, verse 7, <clears throat> we're going to see that both Ishmael and Isaac were sons of Abraham. So someone read verse 7, if you would, please. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be made. Okay, so here Paul's quoting Genesis 21, 12. And even though Abraham had two sons, right, Ishmael and Isaac, um, it was Isaac that was called to continue the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise, right? And then continue verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Okay, so here Paul's actually interpreting what that verse in Genesis 21 means. Um, Isaac was a Jew, right? Because he was under, he was under Abraham, Jew, a believing remnant Jew, because God called Isaac. I mean, I shouldn't even say he was a Jew, because the ten, right. his, fa his son was Jacob, right? And Jacob was the one what Israel came out of. But the Jew, Paul is saying that a Jew is the one in who the promise comes through, right? So he's sort of talking about how Isaac being a Jew is because that line that God called through and God pulled through came through Isaac. 
Isaac then had Jacob, right? Jacob and Esau, and that's a whole. Not, that's another illustration of Jacob and Esau. Jacob's renamed to Israel, right? And that's how we get the, the tribes. So, um, so the promises were not given to all of Abraham's physical descendants because Abraham had Ishmael. Ishmael had other sons, and they had a whole people group too. But the promise was not given through that line; it was given through Isaac. Um, we follow on that. Okay, another example is verse 9. Um, and this is a promise of a son that was given to Sarah, not to Hagar. Um, so v read verse 9. So this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So here he's quoting Genesis 18.10. And I'll read that. Genesis 18.10 says, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So remember that story. It's a theophany, right? Christ is there expressing what is going to happen, and he promises Abraham. Um, obviously, he knows that Sarah could hear, but he's promising Abraham that the seed would come. When I come back in a year, you're going to have a son. It's going to be through Sarah, right? Yet what happens? We find that you know she becomes impatient and all this stuff, and so she... She decides. She decides to offer Hagar her, her what? She decides to help God out. Yeah, right. I think he forgot. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. What did he, Yeah, what did he say? What what exactly did he say? I forgot what he said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so the promise of the son was promised by God to Abraham that it was going to be through Sarah, not Hagar, right? So the argument that Paul is presenting is that although Isaac and Ishmael were both children of Abraham physically, Isaac was the son of the promise, right? Isaac was a spiritual seed as well as the physical seed. So he, but here, here it is. So he says, okay, they both came from Abraham, but they had actually had two different mothers, right? So he's like, he's going to be anticipating a question in the sense that, um, they had the same father, but different mothers. So does that mean that there's a distinction based on some kind of physical descent, right? And, 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 and not based on election? Um, and so he's going to answer that question. What, the idea that, okay, if everybody, if, you know, if ever, say Abraham and Sarah had six sons, would all of them carry along this, the line, right? No, it's God's election. So he's going to prove that even though they had the same father, different mothers, he's going to prove that God elects whom he elects. So he goes through the next illustration, which is 10 verses 13, 10 through 13 of chapter 9. Um, and so we know, right, Jacob and Esau, right, they have the same father, right? They have the same father and the same mother. Moreover, 
they were twins in the same womb at the same time, right? Um, so when we know that God chose one or the other, did it have anything to do with them being this or the good or bad or you know any color or anything like that, right? It had nothing to do with that. So let's read about it in verse 10. It starts with Rebecca. Let's read verse 10, if you would. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though yep. they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Right. So verse 10, right, where he's making the case, um, not only so, meaning that Abraham had two children with two different women, so it isn't just that family dynamic. Even so, he elects, even if the family dynamic is one father and one mother and twins in a, in a womb, right? He, even though Esau, secondly, even though Esau was the firstborn, he chose Jacob, right? Um, he chose Jacob not on account of anything other than his own choosing, right? That we, that we can tell. Um, God chose one of Rebecca's sons to be the recipient of that messianic line, the messianic promise, and then that land, seed, worldwide blessing. The worldwide blessing is coming, he's deciding it's coming right through Jacob, right? Um, and he also, at the same time, then he denies the claim that Esau could have, right? He's, he's claiming that Jacob has it and disclaiming that, you, that Esau has that line, right? So now we see, like Greg was reading in 11 and 12, that Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Go ahead, Greg, with 12 uh, or, and 13. She was told the younger will serve, the, uh, the older will serve the younger. Excuse me. Yes, yes. And then 13. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate. Right, so there's... There, there's more than just a choosing, right? There's more than just a choosing. It says, I loved and I hated, yeah. right? I mean, it's more than just flipping a coin or, you know, something silly like that. Yeah, but this word hated, I mean, when you, it's not hate like we think of it as hate. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's more of um, not choosing. Not, not choosing. Yeah. It's not like rejected. Not, right, it's just like you're not chosen, so... You still have value, you still have purpose. The word hated, but you have to, when you go back and research that word, it's not how we think of it. So. Yeah, because there's a story of Esau later on. Right? There's more yeah. to that. But yeah. Paul's just pulling that part out to prove yeah. God's election, right? So we're, are we getting the grasp that the outcomes of Rebecca's sons are dependent upon solely upon God's election, his divine election, right? Not physical descent, not the color of their hair, or not any size, anything, right? It's all based upon his choosing. The whole program was according to God's plan and God's purpose, right? So in verse 12, it's, uh, Paul's quoting Genesis 25, 23, and he's, you know, and he's showing, Paul's using that to show that there's two people here, and they're the heads of like a whole of a claim that could be made, right? Because their father was Isaac. The claim, the promises came from his father, Abraham, right? And, and so that claim, they could be saying the same claim, but he says, 
um, in verse 23 of chapter of Genesis 25 that God had already chosen the one that the Abrahamic covenant would be continued through. And I'll read that. It just says, uh, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Um, so that's God, the Lord, telling Rebekah, right? You're going to have this situation all of your life, basically. Two, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. And the one shall be stronger than the other. Why is he stronger than the other? Because God chose him to be, right? Not to this day. Even still to this day, to right? This day. Yeah, yeah, we exactly. I would exactly agree with you that we're we should not accept expect any kind of peace in the Middle East because it has everything to do with claims, right? Because uh, I just want to go like this because I mean they don't even consider they don't um, take the history, the biblical history, and take res not responsibility for it, but. They just think that's their land, and they don't look at what is actually the Jewish people's land. Yeah. They just how well, it's the winner and the loser, basically, right? It's yeah, the win. It's well, and that's so. That's what would happen is they would say, "No, we're Abraham." Right? Islam exalts Abraham, right? And it says that Ishmael is our is our forefather. We have claim because it came to Abraham. So they, they hold to the Abrahamic covenant, but then the other part, so they say the Jews corrupted the Bible because they hold the Bible to be high and holy too, but the Jews have corrupted it, changing it from Ishmael to uh, Isaac, right? And so how are you going to reconcile that? One says it's us, the other says it's us. Who's, who, who's right? Who's wrong, right? And we know that Jesus Christ made the claim you know, and he says, Oh, Israel, Israel, how I wish I, I could, how you would repent, how I could hold you under my wings, you know, but you reject us too. So, but you're, you're right, Jerry, that we shouldn't expect them to be like, Oh, we're going to get along here, right? One's, one's a chosen group, and they both think they're the chosen group, and the other one is not. So it's a, it's a tough thing. the children in Rebecca's womb as human beings. They, he identifies them as people, as, as a nation going forward. So that, that's a beautiful well, and I mean, that was part of it. In you, right, to Abraham, many nations will come from you, right? Not just one nation, Israel, but many nations will come from you. And there are many nations that are... Uh, have father Abraham, right? <clears throat> okay, so this national election, right, was determined while Esau and Jacob were in the womb, done nothing right or wrong. Um, that election was nothing based upon what they were could do or didn't do, right? Because and and since that Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, meaning it didn't matter what Israel did, God had already promised. Abraham, remember he put Abraham to sleep and then he walked through the stove and the <clears throat> cut meat and all these things. Um, that he's the one who holds himself accountable to that promise. And God is faithful, right? He's saying, I'm doing this alone. You're going to be over there. I'm doing this alone. I'm, 
announcing to you that I will do this. It's a covenant that I make. We serve a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, which should strike us as very unusual because God, the creator of the universe that does anything he wants to do, limits his behavior, right? Limits his, his rule and says, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to do that, right? He doesn't have to do that. Who are we to say, no, you have to, you should do this or you shouldn't do that or all that, but he does. And he makes a covenant with man, fallen man, to prove his faithfulness and his love for man by restraining and constraining himself to these things, right? And, and just that covenant, you know, like what Leonard was preaching on and you hit on it too, um, about the covenant ceremony of God coming down the two sides. Um, you know, I mean, that was like serious business. That yeah. was incredibly serious. And so... And Abraham wasn't a part of it. Yeah. Just there to witness it, basically, right? Yeah. Yeah, well that so that was the traditional way of oath keeping and oath covenants that normally the two parties would walk through together and they are basically saying to each other if I don't uphold my part then these things, this cut, this cut in two, should happen to me. If you don't hope, hold up your things, then we, it's our, uh, an expectation that you would be cut in two in a sense, that there's discipline for not upholding this contract that we have. So when God does it by himself, he's not holding Abraham to that same standard. He's holding himself. So it's, it's, very, it's very serious and very good, right? Okay, so to prove that God chose Jacob over Esau. Paul pulls another passage from uh, Malachi. Um, and, and, so what, and that's verse 13. Even as, even as it is written, when he's saying even as it's written, he's, he's quoting Malachi 1, 2, and 3. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The actual passage reads like this. It says, uh, this is Malachi 1, 2, and 3. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Right, so Paul is pulling from Malachi to prove the election of God. Um, there's no way to get around that statement, right? There's no way to, to figure out another possible way of being equity and, and you know, all these other things, fairness and just... All these, you can't, you can't argue with that. If, like I said, if you don't like it, get your own universe, you know, and, and you figure out a way to deal with that. So, um, but let's, we need to kind of look at the point here, right? Look close at the point here. It's not about loving more or loving less, right? It literally means that God just took Jacob as his own or as to, to be his, to do, serve a purpose, right? That's, and Esau, he set aside to do something else, right? That's, and as we can see all throughout history, God used Esau's descendants to often wage war with Israel to prove God's faithfulness and to uh, fulfill God's plans with Israel, right? In the sense that the descendants of, of, of Esau were at enmity with their with their brother, right, uh, Jacob, and they would often 
to this day want to wipe them off the face of the earth. And God would use them to, and then by the words of the prophets, to, hey, get back in line here, get back in line here. So we see God's purposes can be used for so-called honorable uses and dishonorable uses, right? And that's another example we're going to see here shortly. So it's not, it's not animosity or personal preference. It's just like we said, God simply chose one over the other. That's, that's what it is. We good? We good? Okay, so with these examples, he, Paul makes four points. Um, first, God's word has not failed, right? Even though they, they failed, meaning Israel failed to accept the Messiah, God's word has not failed. His plan is still working itself out. Everything is according to his plan and will go according to his plan. Second point is that Paul says the spiritual blessings don't come through whether you're a physical descendant or you do good things or personal merit, right? It's divine election. Third, they come by the grace of God and completely by the will of God. Um, but also, even though God chose Isaac and Jacob, even within those descendants, they're not going to receive spiritual blessings either because there's two Israels, right? There's those who are the remnant, the believing, and those who are not the believing, right? Um, so just being physical descendants of that line doesn't guarantee or automatically put you in that, in that uh, saved boat either, right? They have to spiritually be appropriated, right? Um, obviously, we know this. Paul's not saying and never said anywhere that um, the promises were taken from physical Israel and given to the church, right? Nowhere He's making that case completely that no, they are still there. His word has not failed. Um, so the promises will be given to physical Israel, but only the physical Israel that believes, right? The remnant that believes. Um, and it's that remnant of Israel that will be receiving the spiritual promises to come. Okay? Any questions? Four points? Pretty good. He makes pretty great clarity about it. Okay, moving on. Three, the light of biblical principles. Um, so he's going to ask and answer two yeah. questions here, right? Um, He's going to, again, deal with God's righteousness, right? In, in light of the biblical principles that have already been established going on to this, right? So the first question is, is God unjust, basically, right? With this spiritual, with this divine election, what is this? How, how, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? That's verse 14. And what is his, what is his immediate answer? By no means. Do we recognize that word? <laughs> that phrase? How many times have he said that, right? By no means. God forbid. May it never be, right? He's like the strongest. No way, Jose. No way, Jose. Right. <laughs> right. Like, um, so is God unjust by just choosing the remnant and not the whole nation? Is God unjust by choosing Jacob over Esau, Isaac over Ishmael, right? Um, you sh you, because God has said it's absolute, total, complete divine election a logical response would be well is that unjust is that unjust right is God unjust because he gets why does he get to choose that right why does he get to do that right um, so if if Paul was not teaching divine complete total election we couldn't answer that question we couldn't ask that question 
right? So by the very fact that he's teaching divine election, complete total election, we, we have the logical thought to say, well, is that just? Is that right? If he wasn't teaching divine complete total election, that we had something to do with it, then we wouldn't be asking a question of his justice, right? We would yeah. be asking the question, well, who picks and why do they pick and why this, right? So don't confuse that. That's another point that Paul is saying. It's obvious that God is electing. So a, a reasonable response would be like, well, now, what do I think about this? Is God just, right? And so, um, but Paul doesn't answer that question. Um, he doesn't actually answer that question the way we want it because we're asking that question from whose perspective? Our we have an idea of justice, right? We have an idea of the way things should be or ought to be or we want them to be. And so we say, because it says, what shall we say? He's right there saying it's a human viewpoint. Is there injustice on God's part, right? We're coming at it from a human viewpoint. So the guy who asked me, what about the six million Jews? You know, well, how come he let them? How could he let them do that? You know, and I wish I would have said a better answer. At, you know, in hindsight of those things, but because he's going to give us a perfect example, um, <clears throat> so he's going to he's going to answer it, but not according to what the way we think, right? So the first point is: Is God unjust? By no means. God forbid, right? There's no unrighteousness with God. He is the perfect definition of righteousness and justice, right? Then the second point is made in verses 15 and 16. So if you'd read, read that, verses 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Um, let's see here. So then it depends, this is what you were saying earlier, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Right, right. I will have my, right. What else can we say to that, right? So he's, Paul is using more Old Testament scripture, and this is Exodus 33, 19. And I'll just read it. It says, God declared, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Right? That's his Prerogative. He gets to do that because he's the creator. It is his universe, not mine or yours, right? So God has the right to show his mercy as he pleases. Um, Moses was said to be one of the meekest men of all on the earth at that time, right? One of the meekest men. Yet his meekness isn't why God chose him, right? It did not merit God's mercy, Um so if God's favor is, is given to those who might already have all the meekness and all the unmerited people, remember he couldn't speak, he couldn't do, he, you know, he was afraid, he didn't do all these things. How much, sore, how much more so could it be offered to those who have the gift of gab or the gift of leading or the gift of these things, right? Um, <clears throat> so Paul's logical conclusion, right, when he says... Um, so in verse 16, so then, right, he's saying, for he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then Paul says, so then, he's saying, oh, okay, so as a result of we know this principle, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, right? He's saying, don't try to figure it out from your human perspective. It's all on God's mercy, on his, on his choosing the way he wants it to happen, right? Um, <clears throat> 
Mercy depends solely upon God's grace. And then here's the third point, verse 17. Someone read verse 17. For the scripture says to, to Pharaoh, <clears throat> for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So we, we already can now see, right? God shows what to Moses? Mercy, right? God shows yeah. mercy to Moses. What is God sh going to show to Pharaoh? Yeah. Not mercy, no. right? Like his power, his, yeah. power, his severity, right? Um, so Paul's quoting Exodus 9.16, proving again his sovereignty, that he gets to choose what he wants to do, basically, right? God has total freedom in his dealings with all men, any man. So in Moses, he showed mercy and goodness, but in Pharaoh, he shows his severity, right? His power and his authority. God, so that tells you that God had Pharaoh in mind before Pharaoh was born that he would be doing these things, right? And that's a whole theological conversation about who hardened, why was his heart hardened? Did God harden his heart? You know, all those conversations about that, right? Paul's saying God raised up Pharaoh for that point, at that specific point, for a specific purpose, at a specific place, right? And he had the sovereignty to do that and nobody else because he elevated him to the throne. God is the one who puts kings on thrones, right? God is the one who puts borders around nations. He's the one who does that. Um, are we good? Okay, so we see in that passage there's both a near purpose and a far purpose, right? It says, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you right away and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So the immediate is right now and the future is uh, my name will be proclaimed in all the earth, right? So you see two, two purposes there, immediate and a distant one. Um, and even as we read through um, that, that passage of that scenario of Egypt, 40 years later, when Joshua enters the land, the Canaanites, remember the story? They were, they were like shaking and quivering and scared. Yeah, because they had heard. Yeah, yeah, and, and come in. They, the Canaanites were fear to death because 40 years prior, God did this to Egypt. And if God did that to Egypt, what could he do to us? So that's part of, we could see that playing out, that the near future was leaving Egypt, and the far 40 years later future was that even those people knew the power of God around the earth, right? Um, okay. Okay, so then Paul's going to draw, based on these applications and these, these principles, he's drawing another conclusion in verse 18. So read verse 18. For then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Right. So then, right, so that's, that's we're seeing Paul's thought process, right? He says, okay, I, I know this, and so then, or therefore, or because of this, we know these things, right? So then. Um, Paul concludes God's mercy is on who he wants, right? Apart from human merit. Moses was an example of mercy. Pharaoh was an example of hardness, right? Um, <clears throat> okay, so what would be another, I'm going to ask you to think for a moment, what would be another question that you would think um, to ask God or to think in your mind? And it's in verse 19, if you want a hint. <laughs> 
So think about that, right? If God, if God chooses mercy and God chooses hardness. So you're just saying, we don't have a choice. Right. Like, and then why is he yeah, why is he going to put me in hell because he hardened me? Right. Yeah, so. That's a pretty, pretty good question, right? Like, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, what about that part, right? So mm -hmm. verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Can you stop God's will? Can I stop? No, no, no. right? So how, why, there's that question, why does he still find fault? How can he come to you and say, I find you fault if you chose me to be this way? That's kind of the idea there, right? But again, what, is the, what does it start with verse 19? Who says? You will say, right? He's talking and you're thinking in human terms. You're putting yourself as the judge over whether God's righteous or judge or not, a just or not, right? You will say to me then, right? So he's talking already starting out. This is a human viewpoint, right? How could he blame people when they're going to do what he willed them to do? Okay, so he begins to answer the question and he's going to use another illustration, right? This would have been the perfect illustration to answer the fellow that asked me about the, the killing of the Jews, right? Yeah. Okay, someone read verse 20 and 21, if you would. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to his molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another to take out all? <laughs> Alcohol, wine can be used for honorable uses too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, for dishonorable use, another for dishonorable use, right? Do we see that Paul answers the question? Does when it says why, he's not, he's not even bothering to answer the question, right? He just deals with what? The attitude of the heart that asks the question, right? Because the attitude of the questioner is total forgetness of who's who. Right. The creator and the creation, right? The creator and the creature. There's a massive distinction between those two. The relationship is that there is the creator who is the potter, and then there's the vessel that we are. And he, when... You know, it's kind of silly. It's like, if you were the pot, would you go up and, why did you make me with this handle right here? Why didn't you make it with the handle over there? Or whatever, you know, silly things like that. So because a potter has the complete right to turn that thing, that clay, into whatever he wants it to use. If he wants to use it to make a beautiful chalice to present to the king for wine, Great, but he could use the same lump of clay to make a bidet or whatever, you know, for, for dishonorable use. He has the option to do what he wants to do with it, right? That's Paul's argument there. Um, so it's really to put you into a proper understanding and relationship with the Creator, right? Um, if God did not elect, would you be saved? According to this understanding, if God did not elect, oh, would would oh, you would. be saved? Right, you would not be right. saved. Right, we would not be saved. Go go to Romans three eleven. Let's just bolster that idea. Romans three eleven. Read read that if you would. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So would you be saved if God didn't elect you? No, I would not be no, saved, right? 
we would not be seeking. People are not lost because they are hardened. They are hardened because they're lost. Does that make sense? People are not lost because they are hardened. They're lost because they're hard. They're, they're hardened because they're lost. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, we're already filled with sin. Remember we talked about that imputation of sin from Adam. Right? right? It didn't matter how many individual <laughs> sins you did. It matters that you were imputed sin. That already disqualified you from anything. Right? If God did not choose you, Joe, you would not be saved. If God did not choose me, we would not be, I would not be saved. We have to understand that perspective. And what, what have we been learning, right? Oh my gosh, not only did he save me, he's sanctifying me, he's going to glorify me. What then, what, remember Paul was speechless. What do we, what do we say? What do I do with that information? Oh my gosh, he's given me every possible thing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing, all these things. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He chose you from the beginning. He's sanctifying you now. He's going to glorify you then. And nothing will separate you from that. Not even yourself. That should make you feel loved and love him back, right? Like your reasonable response is, here, here I am. Do whatever you want, right? Do whatever you want. Um, good? Yeah, good? All have fallen short of God's righteous standards. All are lost because they are sinners and don't seek God. Yeah. Right? Okay, so let's see the application of that understanding. Verses 22. Read verse 22. It's going to be 22 and Okay, so what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? So at any moment, he could have showed his wrath and his power, right? Before we were ever saved, he could have showed to all the people before. He could have shown to Israel when they were the Messiah his wrath and his power, right? So he's describing unbelievers, right, as vessels of wrath and explain that they are, they're what? They're prepared for destruction, right? If you're an unbeliever, you are going to have a fit body, a body built, um, able to withstand eternity away from God. I mean, wrap your mind about that. You're, we're all going to live in eternity, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer. You're going to get a body that's going to be fit to be next to God and a body that's going to be fit to be apart from God. But you're going to live in eternity, right? Um, but what we see, he says, desire to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God has been long-suffering. He has been merciful. And there can be no real complaints against him. Oh, goodness. Um, <clears throat> okay, we better end there. Shoot. We'll disregard that moment, and then we'll come yeah. back to that. Heavy <laughs> stuff, man. <laughs> Okay, we ready to pray? Yep. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. You have given us life. You, have, you are sanctifying us. You will glorify us. Lord, simply all we ask that you increase our faith to believe and trust that. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. Increase our faith. Increase our understanding. Increase our truth that we might fall in love with you deeper and deeper and understand the depths and the heights and the, the widths of how much you have done for us that we would just respond with 
absolute and utter worship and gratitude and present our bodies a holy and living sacrifice to you. Lord, help us. We love you. We pray that the worship service would be honoring to you. You'd be pleased with us as a corporate body as we worship and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.